Welcome to the Learning Curve Podcast with Kara Kandal of the Pioneer Institute and me, Bob Bowden of Choice Media. We'll start with a few news stories, and uh, the first is about Pennsylvania restrictions on charter schools. And so... uh, you know, this coming to us from the Philadelphia PBS station after years of political gridlock on charter school reform, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf said he would use his executive power to hold charters to the same ethical and transparency standards of public schools, which I think that means they'll never be shut down ever. I think that's exactly what the, that's the, exactly uh, what he's saying. But uh, but so Wolf, this Governor Wolf, for those who don't live in Pennsylvania or don't follow it, he, he has this proposal to allow districts to cap enrollment of charter schools that fail to provide high quality education. I'm getting I'm guessing you let the districts, you know, it's like McDonald's judging Burger King, right? The districts get to decide whether the charters are providing high quality education, you know, in quotes. And then he also wants to initiate a fee for service model to cover the State Department of Education costs associated with implementing the charter school law. In, in other words, are they are they going to charge the district schools for all of the work that the De- State Department of Education does regarding district school education? No. no. This is a cost that's just specifically being you know targeted to hurt the charter movement in Philadelphia. So what do you say, Carol? I mean, charter schools that already don't receive nearly as much money as their district school counterparts, charter schools that are, by the way, in places like Philadelphia, you know, giving kids opportunities that they haven't had ever in the districts, charter schools, many of which are housed in buildings that were previously occupied by schools that were shut down for such low performance. But I think what we have here, I mean, it's sort of, it's a little bit of deja vu, right? So um, it's Pennsylvania has for a long time just been hitting school choice as hard as it can. And Governor Wolf is just right out at the front here. He is, um, he's going to keep all forms of choice, all forms of parent empowerment seem to be off the table in Pennsylvania. And this is really harmful to the families and students of that state. And especially of cities like Philadelphia, where, where charter schools like mastery, these, these folks are doing really great stuff for kids. Uh, it's like a th- it's it's a huge footprint in Phil- in Philadelphia. It's about a third of the students the charter footprint. Absolutely right. And, and there's uh, a reason for that because parents want it. Right, and and so he wants he wants to uh, charge charter school applicants a fee to open a school eighty six thousand dollar fee if you want to open a chart. A, uh, that's a cyber charter. I mean, I mean, it's nothing. <laughs> Right. I mean, just make it harder and harder. And to me, there's just no high minded policy here, no deep analysis, no careful distinctions. It's just it's just they just want to hurt the movement. It, to me, it's, it's like when dis- talking a discussion is over, like it's like in the Wild West. And now it's time for both the sheriff and the desperado to just start trade trading blows, you know, like no longer. There's nothing to think about. They're just trying to hurt the charter sector in, in Pennsylvania. It's as simple as that. Blatant. Exactly. Right. Couldn't agree more. So, so uh, we move to Rhode Island, where the Providence report from – well, the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy, our friends at Johns Hopkins, Great had work. this report. Yes. Uh, that, and, and also congratulations to them for the mileage they got on this report. So I've seen great reports that kind of get, you know, cricket sounds or whatever, but boy, not this one. They got a lot of reaction. And, um, and just for example, let me just quote two sentences from it. School culture in Providence is utterly broken. Teachers do not feel safe in school. Students do not feel safe. There is widespread agreement that bullying, demeaning, even physical violence are occurring within the school walls at an unprecedented level. This is a report about Providence public schools. And 
well, it exploded in our space. Kara, what do you think? I think, well, first of all, yes, cheers to our friends at John Hopkins University Institute of Education Policy, because this is a thorough, very well-written report. And most importantly, it's something that's incredibly hard to ignore. So, you know, we have now had accountability for outcomes in this country since 2001, more or less, right? But it's the sad thing here is that places like Providence are still slipping through the cracks. You know, this um, low expectations for kids, low expectations for adults, quite frankly, and just an utter, I wouldn't even say it's lack of investment. We're not talking about money and resources here. We're talking talking about an utter lack of investment on, on the part of the adults that are running the school system. So, um, you know, and to the detriment of parents and kids who probably are, weren't even aware of how horrible things were in Providence. So luckily now it looks like action is going to be taken. We've got a new, um, a new sheriff in town there who is taking this report incredibly seriously, but just the hits keep on coming as we uncover, you know, what's really going on under the hood in Providence. And, and, um, and it's going to be, I think an instructive case to watch. We know that situations like this can be turned around with the right measures. We know that that's students and families can be better served when we make intelligent decisions about not only inputs into our schools, but how we hold adults accountable for outcomes. Um, and, and I really hope that the spotlight remains on Providence, Rhode Island, because this has been going on for just far, far too long. Yeah. And I like the, you extended my wild west metaphor there, which I, I like to work in as much <laughs> as possible. But I, and in one quick thing too, they, they, in that report, they compared Providence to Newark, New Jersey and Worcester, Massachusetts, which Normally, only people from Massachusetts can pronounce properly. Because it's Worcester. Worcester. Whatever. Okay. So <laughs> so they compared those three districts, and they showed Providence doing much worse. And I was curious. I'm like, are they including charter students in that data? I emailed uh, Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. Al Passarella wrote me back and said, absolutely not. So I thought maybe Newark looked better than Providence because Newark has a lot more charter students than Providence. Turns out, no. He says that the data they used in that report showing Providence so much worse than even Newark, which, believe me, is not a high bar, uh, is uh, is not because of the charters in Newark. It's just simply because of the distinction in how the district schools are run. Yeah. So, uh- Moving that's on, and now right. to I'll the- just say real quick, Bob, that that's right. also a testament to state accountability systems, right? So even when you have strong accountability, you can still have low-performing um, schools, no matter what kind of schools they are. But in places like New Jersey and Massachusetts, where we have a much higher bar, I think, for all of our public schools, uh, it makes a huge difference. And this is part of what we see happening. Moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, we go to Seattle now, Dateline Seattle, where we have a new dress code from the Seattle public schools. And this kind of thing makes me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say we're a, you know, a family broadcaster. I'll say WTF is with, but there's this new dress code. Okay. So the change comes after I'm, I'm reading here from the Seattle Times. Change comes after teachers, students, and school board members complained that students lost learning time when they had to go home for dress code violations. They said the old rules, which included bands on leggings, sagging pants, and shorts with four inch inseam, discriminated against girls and students of color. In response, the district took the dress code out of the hands of individual schools and created a simple, single edict. As long as the clothes do not reveal private parts or incite (laughs) hostility, all students have to do is wear a top and bottom or a dress 
and shoes. That's it. So the new dress code says, I'm reading, I don't know how I could misinterpret this, Kara. It says if you don't reveal private parts and you wear shoes and you don't incite hostility, you're good. Listen, I mean, this is this this story, too, gave me a good chuckle. And, you know, full disclosure, as a parent, I love the idea of uniforms. I wish my kids school had uniforms simply because I hate arguing over what we're going to wear every day. Right. I, but this story left me thinking like, OK, what how do you quantify what incites hostility? And what's what does this actually look like? The, the other part of this, though, that was really interesting to me is that if the reasoning is too many kids are being sent home for dress code, Code violations. I'm asking myself the question, first of all, why are we sending kids home for dress code violations? Why aren't we fixing the problem? I think that there's a better way to do this. But the other part of this is this what's, This is exactly what happens when you put these blank, the blanket decision-making power in the hands of a bureaucracy instead of telling school leaders and parents, you decide what needs to happen. Because I bet that you're not going to get a bunch of parents together. And probably my suspicion is that most parents are going to say, Uniforms are great. Let's everybody can wear the same khaki pants and white polo shirt, and we'll help you buy it if you can't afford it, right? Yeah, but well, I think a lot think of parents I, aren't going to be happy with this uh, blanket dress code. Don't show your private parts. There are reasonable limits here. I think parents. I mean, please, it's uh, there's a standards of reasonability that most I would think, if put to some sort of survey, would be absolutely borne out by parents. And that's our news. Let's turn to our newsmaker interview with the great Nina Reese of the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. We are so happy to have with us today Nina Reese, President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Previously, Ms. Reese was Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives with Knowledge Universe. She worked for over 15 years in Washington, D.C., most recently as Assistant Deputy Secretary for Innovation and Improvement at the U.S. Department of Education. Nina also served as a Domestic Policy Advisor to the Vice President of the United States. Welcome, Nina. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. And so, Nina, we're just going to jump right in here because you have been a very busy woman lately. Thank you very much. I think you're always a busy woman, but definitely as of late. And a lot of um, charter school stuff in the news lately. So um, as I'm sure you well know, recent polling out of Harvard and Education Next has revealed that 18% of respondents think charter schools can hold religious services, 60% say they don't know, and 29% of respondents think that charters can charge tuition. Um, so obviously, we know that support is up for school choice generally from this same poll. But what we also know is that this misinformation of what ch- about what charter schools really are and what they do persists. Now, you and your organization are on the fore of you, you are the purveyors of most of the information that we consume about charters, especially the accurate information. So can you please tell us a little bit about what you and others are doing to persist, to debunk these persistent myths? Oh, that's a great question. And just by by way of reference, when I first um, came to the National Alliance seven years ago, um, this organization had done some polling back then or a few years before that that indicated pretty much the same percentages of people who just didn't know what charter schools were. Um, so what's what's interesting about these polls is that the base of support remains pretty steady, even though Education Next saw a dip in 2017. Um, then those 
who oppose charter schools have remained rather small, but there is still a vast majority in the middle who don't know what it is. And in, in the case of this last survey, a lot of people think that they're private or that they can hold religious services. Um, so I think this is a function of two things. First of all, we're still only serving 6% of the entire entire public school uh, community. So we're still pretty small. So, you know, uh, and unlike private schools that have been around for a long time, the word charter school is not a household name yet. Uh, but then the other issue is most of our charter schools don't even have the word charter in them. Uh, people who send their kids to charter schools are not necessarily sending them because these are charter schools, but because they're schools of choice that are offering a great education that fits the needs of the students attending them. Um, and then what has changed a little bit over the past few years at the national level, of course, is the fact that our opposition uh, is definitely defining what charter schools are much more aggressively, certainly on social media. So the vulnerability is really around the damage that negative information can, uh, can do. As far as what we're doing, um, we believe uh, strongly that the best way to uh, talk about charter schools and sell charter schools is by having those who are attending charter schools, those who, uh, you know, with fa the families who are sending their kids to charter schools, the principals of the charter school, the teachers of the charter schools, for them to actually uh, talk to other people about what they are and uh, to do so locally much more aggressively. And then in general, we have one um, ad that we encourage people to see and use. Uh, called Discover Charters, which is a basic, um, you know, uh, ad that talks about what charters are and 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 that they really truly are about uh, finding the unique brilliance in every child, so to speak. Yeah, Nina, Fantastic. for charter branding, we uh, got to get those Ohio folks on board, right? For those who don't know, people in Ohio don't call charter schools charter schools; they're called community schools, which is yes. a kind of confusing a problem, right. but. Yeah. But I wanted well, to ask Bob, maybe we could take just for real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt you, my friend. Take a quick minute to just define for our audience the fact that level set the fact that charter schools are fully public schools. They cannot discriminate as to whom they accept and they they don't charge tuition. They operate off public dollars. And Nina, I just uh, one quick follow up to your question, because you guys do at the National Alliance do such phenomenal work around guiding states in the creation of high quality charter school laws. Could you just really briefly tell us um, what what you encourage states to think about when designing charter laws that can aid in promoting um, a better understanding of what charter schools are and keeping them open to more people? That's a great question again. Um, so I, as you noted, we have a model law, which is really uh, the policies that uh, we've captured over what the 25 plus past years of chartering from different states, then we've accumulated them in a document that state legislators and whether where whether it's a state that doesn't have a law or a state that has a weak law, they can use the components of this model law to improve their law. And basically, uh, so that and there are twenty somewhat different components that make a, a charter school law strong. And I would put them in three different categories. One of them is the level of autonomy they give uh, to the principal, and that autonomy certainly 
Uh, one of the key autonomies is the ability to hire the best, to expand the school day, and um, uh, and to come up with different ways of teaching in the classroom, different curricula and whatnot. Uh, the second piece of it, and this is the piece where I believe most states are still lagging behind, is funding equity and facilities finance. Um, and in that area, um, as, as you know, in most states, uh, even though charters are receiving uh, the bulk of the funding that fo- follows children to public schools by and large, we're still short by at least 25 cents on every dollar. In states like Ohio, that number can dip to about, um, well, 40 cents on an every dollar. So in, in, in Ohio charter schools, in some communities, they're only getting 60% of the money that follows kids to traditional schools. Um, so those are the, 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 in order for you to have a robust law, you should be open to the freedoms and flexibilities that principals need in order to run effective schools. You need to have um, a funding system that actually allows for uh, children to take their dollars and take them to the charter school of their choice. But there also needs to be uh, an emphasis on student achievement, accountability. And so the strong states are the ones that have some clear parameters around what what it means um, if a school is not doing well and, and, and the ability for the authorizer to close that school or to have a say in how, uh, what to do with the school if the school is not performing well. What's interesting, though, is you can actually have some strong charter schools in states with weak laws, uh, or Dylan is one of those examples, or Baltimore City in Maryland is one of those examples. Uh, You can also have some bad charter schools in states with strong laws. So I don't want to get too bogged down in the quality of the law, but the fact is, though, that if you have a strong law, your ability to scale uh, the model uh, faster and, and, and to get more students in charter schools goes up uh, pretty dramatically. Our keen news hounds will notice there's a presidential primary going on. Now, well, the primaries <laughs> haven't started, but a bit of an election. Of course, Choice Media and Pioneer Institute are 501c3s. I presume that the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools is too. As such, we don't uh, we don't endorse or oppose candidates uh, nor a specific specific legislation. But after what had been a long uh, sort of uh, drought in terms of presidential primary debate. Uh, references to education, we suddenly last week had a whole bunch of it. And so this was a question posed to Andrew Yang. I'd like to have an academic discussion now about education. Mr. Yang, we'll stay with you. Here in Houston, the school district is facing yet another year of spending cuts. Like schools across the country, the system faces many challenges. One of them, thousands of students are leaving traditional public schools and going to charter schools. You're the most vocal proponent on this stage for charter schools. You have said that Democrats who want to limit them are, quote, just jumping into bed with teachers unions and doing kids a disservice. Why isn't taxpayer money better spent on fixing traditional public schools. Now, I'm going to pause it because Andrew Yang didn't reference charter schools at all, despite how directly that question was posed to actually get him to say something. But I did go through and there were a couple of other candidates just for the benefit of our listeners. I want to just quickly uh, hit what the other candidate said. First referencing that was Elizabeth Warren. School teachers since I was in second grade. And let's be clear in all the ways we talk about this, money for public schools should stay in public schools, not go anywhere else. I've already made my 
my commitment. I will. We will. Ha- so that's that's all she said. She didn't use the term charter schools. Uh, but however, former HUD secretary Julian Castro did. He kind of released his own macro review of charter school quality. And he said this. Schools. You asked a second ago about charter schools. Look, um, it is a myth that charter schools are better than public schools. They're not. And so, Thank you, Secretary. Well, well, I'm not. Ha- he gets that, and he kind of moves on. And then I kind of thought that would be it. But then, as even though the question moved to other education issues, we had a final charter school reference coming from. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. In Newark, New Jersey. And we didn't stop there. We, had, we closed poor performing charter schools, but Dagnabbit, we expanded high performing charter schools. We were a city that said we need to find local solutions that work for our community. The results speak for themselves. We're now the number one city in America for beat the odd schools from high poverty to high performance. So there, uh, there Senator Booker, uh, really kind of referencing, I think, Foghorn Leghorn with the Dag Nabbit reference. So, Nina, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I presume you watched the section of that presidential candidate debate. Uh, and I also know you wrote about it. Uh, what can you tell us? How, how did you what did you think when you heard that? Well, first of all, I mean, I was glad that the um that they asked the question about public education and about charter schools. It was interesting that many of the candidates didn't actually answer the question. Um, So even in Warren's answer, even though it was kind of cryptic, I mean, charter schools are public schools. So you can, you can, you can put a little check mark that she didn't actually say that they shouldn't, the money shouldn't go to charter schools. But anyway, um, I do think that, that Mr. Booker's answer, Senator Booker's answer was, uh, was strong considering some of the other answers he had given in the past. He definitely has a track record. So instead of, you know, walking away from the track record, he owned it. And he and I thought his answer was pretty good. Um, Mr. Yang has been like this the whole time. He has only talked about the importance of high quality public schools. And so, again, I mean, charter schools are public schools. Most parents don't care if the school is charter, private, public, magnet. So if you are trying to appeal to voters, I do think talking a lot about the label is confusing, especially at a time where so many people don't know what a charter school is. But of course, as something, as, as a movement that really was born out of um, the left and the right coming together to embrace public school choice within the public school system, uh, it is somewhat discouraging that these Democrats are not talking about charter schools, the track record of charter schools, high quality charter schools, um, and, and the impact, quite frankly, that many charter schools have had on the Strategy. current school system in many cities where we have a lot of charter schools, like in Washington. D.C. So I, I do think they're missing some opportunities to attract voters, um, especially Democrats, uh, Hispanic Democrats and uh, black Democrats who, uh, according to the Ednex poll and another poll by Democrats for Education Reform, uh, largely support the idea of a charter school and the idea of sending their kids to those uh, to high quality public schools. Yeah, tra- don't you figure Warren really was was I know she said public money for public schools should remain in public schools. But, you know, her 2003 book notwithstanding, don't you think she kind of meant district schools with her answer? <laughs> Well, yes, but and it <laughs> okay. could have been, it yeah, could have been a worse too. answer, right? <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. 
So Nina, I want to I want to jump in here with a question about, you know, federal support for charter schools or the influence of federal support for charter schools because as we know, under President Obama, charter schools were a huge policy priority. They were a huge part of race to the top and in a lot of places that policy which encouraged the creation and replication of high quality charter schools, especially in high needs areas, really led to the growth of certain charter school sectors. Certainly we saw some response here in my home state of Massachusetts. Um, the current environment is much different. So as you noted, we have, it's um, it's a much more, um, we've got factions now. Charter schools, which were once a very strong democratic issue, have now become to be associated with one party alone. And at the same time, we've got this phenomenon of um, charter schools across the country um, in, in some places becoming unionized when um, the national teachers unions have been for a long time the most vocal critics of charter schools. Uh, so I know I've thrown you kind of a two-part question here, but would really love your take on the current climate and how we should be thinking about it. Um, so first of all, um, since you mentioned the teachers unions, uh, one of the first people who started to talk about charter schools is the former president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, who really went back when Bill Clinton was running for president, along with others, started to talk about the notion of creating these charter schools in order to give teachers more autonomy and agency in how they constructed their classroom and taught kids. So it's Albert unfortunate. Schenker. Yes. And so it's unfortunate that, you know, Years later, we are where we are, given his vision around the the power of this to really liberate teachers in particular. Um, But, you know, look, we're not... um, um, you know, th- th- these controversies have existed for a long time. I think what's different now is that uh, absent uh, other ed reforms that the unions have attacked in the past, like No Child Left Behind, teacher pay based on student performance, Common Core, uh, this has now become the issue that they have decided they are going to attack. And they started to do so in Los Angeles and in Chicago and some other places. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think to the extent Democrats are vying for the support of the teachers unions, they believe um, that perhaps talking about charter schools in this way will get them their endorsement and their support. But as I said earlier, uh, they're forgetting that there are also a lot of families now in charter schools. We have over 3.2 million students in charter schools and another 5 million who want to attend a charter school if one was open in their neighborhood. So you are basically um, forgetting that, you know, with 58 percent black Democrats supporting charter schools, over 50 percent of Hispanic Democrats supporting charter schools, that there is another community of individuals who are even larger than the teachers unions who, um, who, who you're alienating in the process. Um, so that's the dynamic. When President, um, well, when Barack Obama was running against um, Senator Clinton, for instance, uh, this wasn't as much of an issue because you had the SEIU endorsing President Obama or candidate Obama at the time. And throughout his presidency, the eight years he was in office, he definitely um, held the line and symbolized the ideal really for what a Democrat for education reform looks like. And um, unfortunately, as both parties have, um, you know, are pulling to the left and the right to attract votes, uh, this is the dilemma that we're in. The center is thinning. And so you have uh, fewer reasons for people to come together on things that you agree on. And 
you know, in some in some states, this could be one of the issues that um, that that gets lost. But one of the things I just want to remind folks of is most charter schools uh, are in inner cities. Most charter schools are serving a, an overwhelming number or two thirds uh, minority students and uh, the constituents of both, you know, the people running charter schools and parents of kids in charter schools are Democrats. So you're not talking here about something that's benefiting wealthy people, suburban people, rural communities, all that much. So in that respect, um, it is a little strange that, uh, you know, the, the, the left is not recognizing that this reform has actually benefited their communities and has you know, made a huge difference, quite frankly, in the lives of, you know, thousands of students who are now in college and in the workplace. And so um, I think right now, though, the thing that would change this the most is if that community comes together to, to talk about this more, because for the, for a very long time in most discussions, this has been an academic discussion or something that you talk about at the grass tops level. But now that you have so many constituents, I do think this is a moment in time uh, where they all need to express their views and make sure that people don't take their votes for granted. Nina, one of the states that's epitomized, I guess, what you're talking about, how Democrats have shifted on charter schools politically, some of them anyway, uh, who lead states, would be California. And not to reprise too much of our podcast last week, but, you know, uh, from the transition from Jerry Brown to Gavin Newsom, we saw this California. Charter law passed, I guess, a week ago or so. Now it allows districts to deny charters on the basis of any financial impact to the district at all. It also kills the ability for charter founders to appeal to the State Department of Education if their charter proposals are rejected uh, by the district and county. And uh, and so, and then we also saw the California State Charter Association, Myrna Castrion, be neutral on that. And it made me crazy. And speaking for Carrie, I think it made Carrie a little crazy based on last week's podcast. Um, where did you stand on this Gavin Newsom law that made it so much harder for charters to get approved and authorized in California and the state association staying neutral? <laughs> well, it's politics. Um, I do think that it could have been a lot wor worse. Um, Mr. Newsom has promised the charter school community that there would not be another opportunity to weaken the law. And um, and so we, you know, we, 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 we work very closely with our state partners and we believe in um, trusting them with their decisions. So I don't want right. to um, talk too much about. You don't want to step on their autonomy and basically their neutrality is is basically your 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 view is that it's up to them to decide. No, I, no I, well, I'm just saying that I believe they did the best that they could under the circumstances. And keep in mind, this wasn't just the governor who um, was a little bit more left-leaning or far more left-leaning than the previous governor, but also a legislature uh, that was overwhelmingly opposed to charter schools. So when you look at the California Teachers Association response, they were not very happy with the outcome either. So when you have both sides unhappy, it means, you know, 
there was some compromise that took place behind closed doors. But whether this is a setback, absolutely. California was the second state that passed the charter school law, if you, if, if, as you know, and it has the largest number of charter schools, the most number of students in charter schools. And of course, it's a large state. So of course, it's going to have these features, the highest growth. So whenever we do our uh, analysis of where the states that are seeing the numbers grow the most, every year, California comes out on top. Even last year, I, despite all the noise in the system, uh, they, they open more charter schools than any other state. So it will definitely uh, have an impact, not just on California, but on other states that may now be looking or, you know, th this could be momentum that could catch on in other states. Okay, now, so just for clarity, did you oppose this or do, are you neutral too? Did you oppose the bill or are you neutral also? Well, we uh, put out a statement that recognized that the state association did the best that they could. We were happy that this is over, that it didn't get any worse than it could have possibly gotten. Um, but we didn't put an official statement because this wasn't one of the states where we were active. And, and I firmly believe that if you if you don't have a dog in the fight, just sitting on the sidelines and opining about these issues is not always very helpful to the cause. I think at the end of the day, though, um, you know, we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out. I don't know how these districts are going to assess the fiscal impact of charter schools. And you still have some districts that have traditionally in, in California or in Los, yeah, in California chartered a lot of charter schools. So that appeal process may be an issue you have to deal with in some communities like Los Angeles, but in other places you have had a record of districts that have opened a large number of charter schools. So it will be interesting to see how this impacts the growth of charter schools and also the renewal of high-performing charter schools. I think that was the thing that caught my attention the most in that, you know, the, the quality of your school may not necessarily be as paramount or important in whether you will get reauthorized or not. And so the fact that these things are all on the table is extremely unfortunate. And again, keep in mind, this is what I find so ironic. Those who are studying this topic talk about quality. We've all been in this because we believe in quality. And so some of these states that have um, well, I guess Massachusetts. So, Kara, since you're from Massachusetts, we can use that <laughs> as an example. People talk we about the record of charter schools in a state like Massachusetts and um, how, you, you know, you did it slowly. You did it so well. But when it comes time to lifting the cap, you saw what happened. And there are very, a lot of reasons for why it happened the way it did. But at the end of the day, this is about politics. And one of the things that our community may not have paid as much attention to, but it needs to pay attention to, maybe, maybe California is a wake-up call um, for the community. And it said that you have to pay attention to the local politics, uh, regardless of whether you have friends in high places in um, in legislatures and the governor's office and, and in presidents. I think for a very long time, I mean, when you mentioned race to the top, and that's a great example of a, of a reform that was somewhat top-down, right? Um, I mean, those things work for a short period of time, but when the leader of these reforms moves on, they don't necessarily always have staying power. So it is important for us to just remember that we are in a highly political space and California certainly has a very strong teachers union. And, you know, um, th these are these are the things that happen when you have a, a system of governance that relies so much on local control and uh, and a powerful union at the helm driving the agenda. So hopefully that yeah. pendulum will shift. 
So that and, and for, for our listeners who um, who tuned in last week and we referenced Massachusetts as well, what we're referring to is question two or the ballot initiative here in 2016 that asked voters to raise the cap on charter public schools. And as Nina is referencing, despite the fact that Boston in particular has been shown by very high quality studies to have some of the highest performing charter public schools in the nation, very high demand, very high wait lists, long wait lists for our schools, uh, voters overwhelmingly defeated that bill. They, they voted against the cap. And I think, Nina, your point is very well taken that if we don't consider local context and community context and what parents want and need or we aren't listening to what's happening on the ground, then um, then we're, we're not going to be on the winning side of kids and of expanding these great opportunities. Um, Nina, you gave us one, you, you've just put on the table one way in which things um, in which we could be more thoughtful as, as charter advocates and, and, and growing the sector and thinking through like how it happens. But so I'd like to put to you before we, before we let you go today, um, two questions. And the first one is, what do you think is the most exciting thing going on in the charter sector nationally? And then where do you think you've given us one, but where do you think there's a little bit of room for improvement. What are you thinking about nationally in terms of how we can do a better job? Um, so in terms of, um, you know, the, the highlights, um, there is a great book by Richard Whitmire called The BA Breakthrough. Uh, if, if your listeners haven't read this book, I highly recommend they pick it up and flip through it. It highlights, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the track record of some of our charter schools that are now graduating record numbers of students, sending them to college and through college. So then these are schools that are making sure their kids are not just going to college, but that they're graduating from college. Um, and so the lessons out of that book uh, are actually lessons that I hope that traditional districts emulate because it definitely demonstrates that it can be done. There is a way to do it. And the fact that these school leaders are you know, also worrying about what happens to their kids after they graduate from school is definitely a testament of the, um, of the types of people who are attracted to opening and running charter schools. So anyway, so that, that to me is one of the highlights. And I, I love to talk to alumni of charter schools. And this book certainly um, highlights um, a lot of what happens to, to students after they leave. In terms of the thing, the area where we need to make some improvements, we talked a little bit about building our advocacy strength at the local level. Uh, but I will also say, you know, even though there are, you know, we talked about California. I mean, this year, Tennessee made some improvements to their law um, Texas has done great things so far to their laws, and you see growth in a state like Texas. Florida made some improvements and continues to be leading on the growth. So now that California has taken a step back, Texas and Florida will definitely uh, be the leaders in terms of growth and whatnot. So um, I do think we have to pay a lot of attention to these places where growth is taking place uh, and making sure that we are not repeating the same mistakes we have made in the past. Um, um, and and some of these things can be self-regulated and and policed if the community work to come together to work more closely together. So my my short kind of answer is better coordination, collaboration, and working with your state association and groups like ours or the Pioneer Institute and other organizations in states like Massachusetts, so that we are actually learning from each other and working as a 
united community of school leaders who really believe in the freedom and autonomy that comes with charter schools in exchange for student achievement. By going it alone, um, we're never going to win. And I think that's, you know, what one of our weaknesses in some of these states, even though California was very well organized compared to other places, is that we just haven't been able to get our community out, you know, in unison on mass whenever we've had uh, to defend. And, you know, this is just kind of a political muscle or, or a muscle that we need to, to strengthen a lot more going forward. So collaboration would be the area that I think we should work on. And of course, on the quality side, I'm, for, I'm a firm believer in closing our poor performing schools as fast as possible. We know, uh, based on research, that if a school doesn't launch with quality in the first couple of years, it's very hard for it to continue or improve. I think we either take the job of improving these schools really seriously, uh, or we take the job of closing them as seriously as we can. And also just remembering that um, you know, the quest for excellence needs to also be coupled with uh, with equity, especially now more than ever before. I mean, there are some schools that are overcoming the odds with populations of students that uh, we need to always be serving. And so highlighting those schools and, and being devoted to the innovations that come in some of these schools that are doing things that are slightly different from what our um, traditional schools have done is important. So I'm sorry, I gave you more than one answer, but um, this is one we'll of the- We'll take questions. them all. We'll take them all, uh, Good. Well, this is how charter school people are. We were, we're very self-analytical. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nina, if I taught a class at a journalism school and I wanted an example of a story that's slyly intermixed to actual reporting with commentary, I would bring in this story from today that we saw from the Hessinger Report, which had reporting about a Mississippi charter school, but quietly intermixes these pejorative of insinuations, this is my point of view anyway, about how charter schools segregate kids. And they, you know, they offered, sure, a few selective statements of a value add here and there. Charter schools can have some value on occasion, but otherwise, and I'm I'm doing my own, you know, subjective paraphrase here. Many charters also trigger this mountain of vicious racism, uh, you know, with uh, segregation because the white, the white students, uh, you know, leave and go to the charters that have all kinds of rules that keep out the black kids. I've seen this charter segregate thing for a couple of years now. It drives me insane. I presume it drives you insane, too. But what do you say to the people who make this charge, which is which I'm hearing now more often? Um, I mean, I think those who make this charge, they've made this charge even before you've had a couple of examples of things that may not look right. Uh, I think a lot of these individuals are actually what they're saying is that if you leave people to their own devices, they're only going to send their kids to uh, to schools with people who look exactly like them. And I actually think that's 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 bunk. And at the end of the day, uh, if you're worried about segregation and issues like that, you just look at, at any city in this country. I mean, these school, these the schools that our students are coming from are probably more segregated than the schools that they end up going to. And the quality of the education that a lot of these students are getting in the schools they're attending here in Washington, D.C. is extremely poor. So even if it's, you know, in, in, in D.C. we have the reverse problem in that a lot of these schools are serving a predominantly minority population. So um, I don't know that fixing, um, you know, the, the whole segregation issue in, in, in through chartering is, um, you know, 
yeah, I mean, I think some of our schools are actually diverse by design. They're trying to address this issue. But if you really wanted uh, to desegregate the system, you have to actually make some decisions pretty proactively on the policy side to address it. So, for instance, where you put your where you put the school matters. You want to make sure that it's in a community that's going to attract kids from different neighborhoods. Um, you want to be very intentional about how, how you know percentages of kids you get from different communities, so that no particular percentage is higher than another percentage. And so I think you just have to be very intentional about what you're trying to do. And this has not necessarily been something that um, we've talked about that much, nor do I think we need to talk too much more about it. I think, uh, yeah, there. Okay. We got it. Our thanks to the great Nina Reese, uh, president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, their website, publiccharters.org. Their Twitter handle handle is at Charter Alliance. I always thought you guys may want to think about merging, somehow having one you know, having the Twitter handle be the same as the web address. I don't know, Nina, that's just me. Oh, gosh. Well, sure you guys talked about that, right? <laughs> you can do it for her, Bob. You can handle that. She's, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot on her plate right now. All right. Yeah, we'll work on that for you. Anyway, so at Twitter, it's at Charter Alliance. And also for Nina herself, it's at Nina Charters. And so thanks again, Nina Reese. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us, Nina. All right. Bye-bye. Now it's time for Commentary of the Week, and we realize podcasts live on long after they're posted, probably forever. But uh, the air, as of the air date of this podcast, Friday, September 20th, students across the country are being allowed to skip school to protest climate change, leading to this commentary by the New York Post. The man wants NYC school kids to protest for climate change, and the New York Post editorial board writes that city public school students can cut class to hit Friday's climate strike as long as they have parental permission, the Department of Ed announced last week. And the the Post editorial board calls this pathetic. And and I would also just say, uh, you know, the same thing happening in Portland, Oregon, by the way, where students there will get an excused absence for skipping class today for for the climate strike. And so my take on this is that – I feel like I'm the lone plaintive voice asking often, what is the principle, not just the specific? So in other words, if skipping is okay for this cause and this social issue, because this school board right now, a majority of them think that they're they're down with this one, the climate change one. Well, then what about a million other, you know, a million other points? You know, what what if, uh, you know, if I were administrator, I, I don't... I, would I get to tell kids that they, they should protest my preferred position on immigration and they shouldn't they can go protest my preferred position on drug legalization and they can go protest my preferred position on, you know, foreign wars? You know, like uh, I can use the education time of underage children if I'm an administrator to to shame those people that disagree with me, those ignorant, benighted opponents on climate and immigration and drug legalization and foreign wars and any other issue I think of, I can use children's learning time to mobilize people to support not my thoughts, my personal thoughts or the majority school of the school board thoughts about that issue because I'm right and those people that disagree with me are wrong. So I get to let kids skip class 
because they help me in my position on whatever the cause or social issue is. Uh, well, I've, I don't entirely agree. I, I, I don't know if climate change, if I'm going to call it a social issue, I think it's a science issue. So where I would disagree with you is that um, is advocacy. that this is, it, that, that this is well, I, I don't think that this is something that the school board is saying, oh, we have a position and we want everybody to support a position, but I'm going to pick and choose. Where I would agree with you, though, Bob, is that I really think that there are better ways to do this. Meaning, if you really want to make kids aware of climate change, or if you want to rally them to understand the science behind climate change, that's exactly what you should be doing. Using school time to talk about these things, to dig into these things, to analyze these things, and to make our students better consumers of information and data so that when they are consenting adults, they can go out and make their own decisions about what they would like to support, protest against, et cetera. So I think, Bob, that I don't take quite, I don't see this as quite as um, as vile as perhaps you do, but I do think that there's a much better use of student time. That, I mean, what, that, that this, is a, this is a cause. It is controversial. You'd agree with that. And what, so it's why, a lot less controversial now than it was a couple years ago. What is our tweet of the week? Our tweet of the week, Bob, is going to take us right back to Rhode Island and our good friends who wrote this report at Johns Hopkins uh, Institute for Education Policy. But it comes from um, from the the public's radio in Rhode Island. And um, it's a quote from Commissioner Angelica Infante Green saying, um, uh, commenting on the fact that um, a review by the public's radio shows that fewer than half of the school age children of elected officials from Providence attend traditional public schools. Let me say that again. Fewer than half of the school age children of elected officials from Providence actually attend traditional public schools. And when asked why this was, the commission rightly said, well, if they're not sending their kids to Providence schools, it's because they know, right? And they're lucky enough to have options. And that's exactly, I think, what we've just discussed today with our good friend, Nina Reese. And so cheers to the commissioner for realizing exactly what's going on with these elected officials who, by and large, by the way, don't support school choice. And that same commissioner, by the way, saying she wouldn't be sending her children to the Providence. I mean, I I don't, you know, yes. uh, Thank you for your honesty, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Occasionally you get someone who who says that and, you know, from the from the Providence mayor to the Providence educa- uh, to the Rhode Island Commissioner of Education, all saying it's time to, for the state to take over that district, even despite the sketchy track record of state takeovers in terms of turning around districts. Yeah. Nevertheless, there seems to be in uh, this case, it seems to be absolutely necessary. So that does it for this week's edition of The Learning Curve. And next week, we will have with us Max Eden, senior fellow at Manhattan Institute and co-author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter. So that promises to be a really interesting episode. Thank you so much, my friend Bob. What a great time we had today with Nina. And see you next week. Okay. Bye.